0: Welcome to this episode of the Palmetto Guardian. This week's episode, we talk first responders, and we have another story uh, from an individual from 9-11 that will be here to talk with us today. Welcome to this episode. I'm Specialist David Erskine. Captain Cody Denson. And today's episode, uh, we continue our, our, our special week of, of podcasts for remembrance of 9 11. Uh, we have a um, um, Master Sergeant, Air Force Master Sergeant, that will be in here with us a little bit later today to uh, talk about his experiences. And we were able to talk to him a little bit beforehand. And uh, he was already in the military when this happened, uh, he was a medic. And uh, so he was, he was there. He was there when it happened. He was there for the aftermath, and I'm not going to go into a whole lot of stuff. I wanted him to be able to tell him story, but super interesting story, and I'm super excited for you all to be able to hear it. But the one thing I really did kind of start thinking about when I was was hearing him talk was, you know, we focus a lot on the military and what we've done and everything else, and not to say that anybody's been slighted over the 9-11 event, but, you know, the the first responders for that event – I mean, there's so much that went on. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to even, you know, you always hear the cliche, it's hard to put it into words. But, I mean, for them, it really is. You're talking about stuff was collapsing and rubble. Their their own precincts and firehouses were involved in this. I mean, their co-workers, brothers, sisters, I mean.
1: It was the ultimate you know. chaos. Yeah. I mean, and they're, they are the first responders to bad situations, but that was the ultimate like, bad
2: situation that
0: could have happened. Everything was just out there. And, and, you know, something else we always talk about. We talk about, you know, people's courage or or bravery. And, you know, a lot of times we think about things in movies and whatever else. You want to talk about bravery and courage and and nothing but adrenaline and throwing your own personal safety to the wind. You, you, you go back and look at footage and photos of these firemen and these policemen and these EMTs rock was still coming down and they were headed in. They're just working. Yeah. They are getting the job done. Yeah. Which
1: is like, just, it blows my mind how, I mean, I would assume I would switch off in the same way and, and do my job, but just to see other people, not many of them.
0: It's hard to imagine that situation unless you're in that situation. Yeah. Um, And and these folks are trained for that. I mean, they're they're trained to do this. And and it, there was no hesitation. There was nothing that was... It was boom, and I mean they were in there, and anybody they could help save, whatever else they they were doing it, and and it sometimes unfortunately to the cost of their own, their own life.
1: I mean that, that's such a busy city to to think they were able to mobilize that many first responders and get all the assets and personnel in one location, and perform their duties, and like you're saying, you know it sometimes to the worst end, but. They got that many people out there to get, and that many people were willing to do it. that's it, it, just awe inspiring.
0: And you know, I'm not gonna, you know, make any, uh, you know, qualms about it or whatever. But I mean, really, reality of things. You know, people, all people, uh, for a certain amount, like to fuss about, you know, how things get done. Or you know, we always hear jokes about bureaucracy and red tape, and all oh, it takes forever to do this. You want to see a situation where that rule doesn't apply, and you want to see how your civil servants work when yep. it's 100% on, that's it.
1: Best example.
0: That was it. Um, now, you went through – you never actually came an EMT, right? Yeah. I did, I did um,
1: the EMT certification course, um, and then I had other stuff. I had like, responsibilities for the military side, so I didn't get to actually certify and become an EMT.
0: Yeah. But I did a lot of the training and got to see – yeah, what be, be like. like. And see, so, you know, that's, um, that. obviously you weren't put into that situation and, and you haven't since since you're, you're training, but, you know, you got to see a situation and if not, but for a moment ago, that could have been me. Now, you were too young at that in particular yeah. time, but looking back at the situation, you could be, and, and once again, you don't know you in that situation until you're in that situation. And, uh, I mean, I did some medical stuff, and I've I worked in the medical field, and I've made mention on the show that I did. And th- there is a little bit of a switch that kicks over, and I've had instances like that where – where, but not to that degree. I, I'm not even going to put myself in the same league uh, as those individuals. Uh, that just wouldn't be fair. I, I'm, I'm just not. But I can kind of – I can slightly relate to what – but, I mean, theirs was just next level. It's just next level. It is. I mean, again, it, it was
1: mass chaos, just – I can't fathom where everything around you is
0: just coming apart. And the fact that they were effective at it.
1: Yeah.
0: I mean, they, they, saved w- lives. they were saving lives. It would have been different if they just all ran at the situation like ants scurrying across the ground. Yeah. Of course, man, that's not a good example because the ants are fairly organized. Something else that scurries randomly. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I mean, they went in there and they were doing it. And, you know, they were pulling out. People from, not only that were they just pulling out, you know, civilians, which is bad enough as it is, but they were pulling out their coworkers and people they'd worked with years that were called in the same situation. And you're talking about weeks of this recovery, and, and even longer than that in some instances. And you couldn't get these people to go home. You, no, I mean, they,
1: they just, they did they want to keep working because they knew there were people that still
0: needed them. Yep. And, you know, w- w- you know... Uh, for once again for people who've never been in that situation like oh my god that's that's terrible you know you're up for 24 36 72 hours you're you're taking 30 minute naps you're in there breathing god knows what in the dust but the thing is is and and for most emts and, and medics and i had an uncle that was a fireman is what's a couple hours of sleep compared to a life
1: yep and you it was running through all of their heads yeah, I mean, no doubt.
0: Every time the sweat hits you and you go to take a knee, you go, nah, it's not worth it. Mm-hmm. And for everybody out there that's listening, I mean, you, you got to put yourself, put yourself in that situation. Just think of as tired as you've ever been in your life. And you're just like, I'm tired, I'm done for the day. But imagine being in that same situation and going, nah, I'm I'm, I'm picking my knee back up. I'm going back in. And that's what these people, at some level, whether it was those exact words, they kept saying to themselves.
1: Because you know, there had been some of them, either they had family that they weren't aware of, or, or you know, where they were, or they had friends or you know, family of friends. Some of them definitely were looking for people that they, they were trying to find also. Yeah. It was to have it in the back of your head the whole time. Yeah. Keep going to find find your friends and family.
0: Yeah. And it's, you know, there's this 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 piece of rubble that I flip over. You know, what am I about to see? Yeah, you know, am I saving a life or, or am I paying respects? Yeah. And and that's, man, man. That's a hard thing to think of. And I, my uncle, uh, he, he's passed away uh, several years ago. Funny guy, good guy, fireman. Been a fireman for years here in the Columbia, South Carolina area. And I remember talking with him, and he was like, you know, we see it all. He's like, we're there. He's like, if there's a wreck, they call us. If there's a fire, they call us. Um, I think people take for granted sometimes um, outside of the the 9-11 event. And I think we've become a little bit more aware, you know, of our first responders and stuff. But I still think, you know, we forget, you know, you get comfortable when there's nothing really making you uncomfortable. You tend to forget. But these folks are still working 9-11 9/11 was the pinnacle of a, a catastrophe and a terrible event for first responders to be in. But don't think just because that was one day they went back to hanging out, joking, and smoking and whatever. They, they're they always working. They're always working. Always. You know, police force same way. EMTs. Um, I've made mention before. My wife's a nurse. She works in the hospital, and I, I came from that background too. Listen, man. These these paramedics and these EMTs. And I've I've said it before. And I. I'll make this statement again. For the level of work and the harms way paramedics and EMTs put themselves into, they they should be they should be w- much better compensated and and much more respected than than what they get sometimes.
1: I, I know sometimes even myself at night, you know, you, you'll be laying in bed and you, you'll hear an ambulance going down the road, and you're like, "Why? I don't want. I'm trying to sleep. I don't want to hear this." But then you think about like. They don't want to hear it either. They want to be asleep, and now they're going out to who knows what. Who knows what they're about to see? Yeah, it could be anything. It yeah. could be nothing. It could be a crazy massive event that requires all sorts of other,
0: you know, first responders.
1: Yeah, um, and so then you kind of have to humble yourself back and be like, all right, yeah. I'm not mad at you. I'm, I can't, I can't be upset no. at the sound coming by. I'm,
0: yeah, I'm, I'm. For anybody, I'm, I'm sorry I jumped up on my soapbox there for a second about the the paramedics and stuff, but I, I I really I really do respect paramedics and EMTs a huge amount, a huge amount. And I've 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 had friends and whatever else. And like I said, uncle was a fireman. Um, I've had some of my other family's members working in and out of law enforcement. I've had some friends from high school, you know, in law enforcement and stuff like that. And so. I respect those folks. We see the vehicle, not the people in there. Yeah. And
1: actually think of what they're having to go through so we don't have to do that.
0: You know, uh, the military always says, you know, we wake up and part of our job is to know that, we, you know, we might die today. It's an unfortunate thing. It's a terrible thing to think about, but it is the reality of our job. I think we forget sometimes when EMTs, police officers, and firemen, they wake up every day in their own neighborhood with that same – Thing uh, maybe it might not be from a hostile action, but you know buildings do collapse when firemen go in it. Uh, domestic disputes do go wrong when police officers there. Uh, the EMTs are at both of those paramedics and stuff are at both of those same events. Um, and so you know, we, I you know you hear people giving EMTs, police officers, firemen, whatever, a hard time and stuff. Remember they they have a hard life. They really do, and 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 they love it. That's the thing. I've never, I've never talked to a fireman or, or even an EMT, you know, all of us gripe about our jobs, but I've never had one of them just tell me, God, I hate doing this.
1: No, yeah, I've never, I've known a few uh, police officers and I I think I've known like two or three different firemen and none of them always, they're just like, yeah, no, I'm going to keep going.
0: Yeah. They might be like, oh yeah, the pay is not great. And you know, regular smoking and joking, complaining that anybody would do at any job. But when you actually just ask them, hey, why you do this, I love it.
1: Yeah. I mean, as tough and relentless of a job as it is, for them to stay and keep doing it, there's something there. Yeah. There's something keeping
0: them. Yeah. You You just built for it. Yeah. It's built for it. It was destiny. That's where you're going no matter what. Um, So, yeah, as always, uh, you know, thank you to these folks. Um, and it's not just a thank you at this point in time of the year. It's a thank you all year around. If we never get a chance to say it on a regular basis, but really thank you all, all year around. Um, you know, it's kind of funny to think, but you know, police officers keep military people safe, they do. <laughs> you know, uh, we're, we're protecting freedoms and they're protecting us and so, uh, and the firemen and the EMTs and stuff. So yeah, I mean they're are our support, and especially with National Guard, um, you know, they, they we work hand in hand with them. And, and a lot of our
1: force on the civilian side perform those duties. Yeah, like half of our force are these police officers and EMTs and firefighters.
2: Yeah.
0: So um, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna kick it on over to our guest today and and hear his story. And I I, I think it's gonna be, I mean it's gonna be sad um just from the little bit i've talked to him about it and stuff um but it's going to be amazing it's going to show you who we really are when we have to be today we have master sergeant chris bernard occupational safety specialist from mcintyre joint joint national guard base um as part of our remembrance week for for 9-11 and he's here to tell us his story about where he was and what he was doing in 9-11. Now, you were already in the Guard at at the time of 9-11. You were part of South Carolina?
2: I was part of New York. I was part of the 106 Rescue Wing out of uh, West Hampton Beach in New York. Uh, 106 Rescue Wing is a PJ unit, so their their main duty is to rescue down airmen. Uh, They also fly the C-130 for aerial refueling. Uh, but as a traditional guardsman, my full-time job is a paramedic for the Nassau County Police Department. It's the first county just east of New York City, so it's pretty busy. So um, I was off duty at the time that uh, this this all happened on that that morning, uh, September 11th. Uh, I was in family court, actually, Uh, just answering uh, something and uh, we were gonna have something dismissed or postponed, and I noticed that the uh, all the, the guards were kind of huddled over a radio, like they were kind of being secretive, like they were watching, a, listening to a baseball game or something. So <laughs> I thought it was a little odd, and um, I just left and wondered what they were doing. But I turned the radio on on my car, and then I knew that was just when the first buildings, the first building was falling. So. I thought, man, that, that's really weird. You know, I've, I thought about my career as a paramedic, and I thought early in my career how I had to respond to a plane crash, you know, a 707 crashed in 1990, uh, January 1990. Avianca Flight 52, there was about 168 people on board, over 100 lived, so, you know, my work was cut out for me as a new paramedic, so I think that was the time that I was committing to join the, uh, the Air Force. Uh, I was going on active duty I had a delayed enlistment and I was looking at September of 1990 um, but getting back to that morning I, it wasn't until I got home that the second tower fell and I I knew that you know as we all did that we were under a terrorist attack uh,
0: mm-hmm.
2: as a member of the guard I wasn't gonna just sit and listen to you know wait for a recall I I lived about 20 minutes away so I got my uniform on and headed to the base. Um, I was a uh, medic for them. I you know, was a 4 medical technician. So I thought this would be a day that maybe my skills would be used. And so I headed in, tried to call my wife. She was at work. I couldn't get through. All the cell phones were tied up. All the towers were tied up. So I finally got to the base and realized they were just enacting uh, like uh, force protection condition Delta. Uh, which I'd never seen before, because we were, we I don't even think we were at Alpha at that time, so normally they would just wave you on base where they see a car sticker mm-hmm. and it was very light the security. This time the the gate was closed and I had to oh you know get on and show my card and why am I here? And I finally got inside the uh, the main building. Um, I was a member of the Honor Guard, a new member, you know, still training, and uh, the chief of the the Honor Guard. He was also chief of personnel, and I wondered why he was armed. He had an M9. I said, "This, you know, this is not normal. At that time, we didn't know if our base was going to get attacked. We didn't know if this was a, an effort, you know, across uh, yeah. the spectrum of, you know, Army, Air Force. We, we didn't know what was happening. So he put me to work immediately, activating recall, seeing where our members were. Some of them worked in New York City, so we were making an effort to you know, reach out to them, see where they were, see if they were safe, and just to find out where people were should we get the call from the Adjutant General of New York to uh, to get in there and go do what we do, rescue people. Uh, that call never came. Uh, over the next 24 hours, we we got our roll call. We found out where our people were. We didn't find anyone that, that was... There was a few people that we couldn't find, so we put them on a, you know, a, a search list and we had people looking um, but ultimately we, we did we were successful in reaching out to everyone within the two days um, I we all assumed that we'd go in there but the first call for for me to go in was September 17th or so uh, as a medic one of the things that we were trained in is to recognize people who were um, in danger of whether it's mental stress or or something post-traumatic stress to to evaluate them to see if they're still functional and that was one of the first things that I did was me and say three other airmen, uh, we had a lead team who was an officer and and another uh, medical administrator to set things up because we worked out of Fort uh, Hamilton in Brooklyn. So we rushed out there, we got set up in temporary housing which we were just gonna share. It was about 12 people to a small apartment. And our first job was to meet the 69th Infantry. It's part of the 42nd Infantry Division. These guys were from, um, not Harlem, but just a few blocks north of, of Ground Zero. And they were the first ones to get called to, to act, you know, do perimeter duty to make sure that no one was coming into the, the perimeter. And, they had been there like pretty much nonstop for, for three to four days. And so, you know, I was speaking to them squad by squad, making sure that they were, they still had their head on there, you know, in the game. And uh, a few people, I think three soldiers I had to actually remove from, from the situation. One, we had to send to the VA because we were concerned. I spoke to his squad leader. He, if he had a weapon, he, he may have used it on himself or somebody else, that was made clear to me. So we, we sent him out for emergency uh, psychological evaluation. He was pretty banged up, uh, uh, as we all were. Behind me was a big window. Now this, we were on about the 32nd floor of a, I guess an abandoned office building. It was just an area for the for the company to rest and sleep, sleep in bags, eat. And looking out the window, I saw the you know the wreckage, the still smoking wreckage of uh, of you know the, the twin towers. This is a. You know, I grew up on Long Island, so I used to go there as a kid. I used to look down and get dizzy looking down <laughs> the hundred second floor. Yeah. Uh, and and you know, little ants down there. I, I remember vividly going there. So it was like a great tragedy. It just you you looking you're like this. I was incredulous at, at the the sight of. Um, you know uh, this wreckage that was still smoldering and and what are we all doing here and i just couldn't believe it it really took a day or so for it all to sink in but they the days leading up to that was probably the hardest because i wanted so badly to get in there to to help but there really wasn't too many people to save at that point they were either caught in that building or they had been removed by ems in the city and new york's you know firefighters and uh, so, what I thought we would be doing, we weren't needed for. Uh, I lived about 60 or 70 miles from Ground Zero, but from my house in Eastern Long Island, I could smell the, the fires. I could it, the smell was so intense, it smelled like your, your neighbor's house was on fire. you know it was so close you, like there's something in the neighborhood that is burning. People were calling the fire department over and over saying, somewhere in my neighborhood there's a house fire yes ma'am it's it's uh manhattan yeah you're you're smelling it was so unbelievable it was so strong um the the highway patrol had set up the hov lane on the long island expressway to be used only for personnel first responders getting into Mm -hmm. and out of the city and (laughs) i remember once i first got the call to go to to fort hamilton to show there I got on the line, Island Expressway, got into that HOV lane, as instructed by by my commander, and the highway patrol pulls me over, and and he, you know, he stopped, he saw the uniform, he says, hey, sorry, I just have, we're protecting this lane, go, you know, do what you got to do, and and uh, first time I got pulled over, I didn't get a ticket actually. Um, <laughs> so I got into the city, we we got our assignments. My assignment was to. Uh, to help set up a battalion aid station and a... I it was Battery Park. Battery Park was very close to um, Engine 10, Ladder 10, which was across the street from the, all the, the debris and the, where the towers were. A lot of firemen died from that firehouse. And um, so we got situated and, again, we thought we'd be getting patients to, to take care of what it, what it turned out to be is we were taking care of the soldiers and eventually the marines that were sent in off for perimeter duty so we would walk around and we would uh, uh, make sure that they were okay make sure that they were getting what they needed what, you know coffee wasn't really something that was available but uh, we had uh, a bunch of donations of cases of this new thing that just came out called red bull <laughs> so at that time i had never had it before so uh, and I'd got uh, cases of it and I'd, I'd hand down a backpack. Finally, we were able to get a, we acquired a golf cart. So I was the Red Bull guy and I'd come around and, and see people who were having symptoms of upper respiratory infections or what I would you know, give uh, antibiotics or uh, Tylenol, things like that. But uh, FEMA came in a day or so after we got there and they started distributing uh, these particulate masks. Uh, they would, Anyone working in the area they realized that stuff was floating everywhere people were coughing and they they uh, Tested us for masks. Um, you know distributed How many? Depends on didn't didn't matter whether you're military firemen So um, I wore the mask. I'm uh, I understand How bad these things are and, and uh, you know, I'm not a smoker or anything. So Kind of try to protect my lungs. Uh Wearing these masks was uncomfortable, but when you're in the inner perimeter, it became really important to do that. And, and I would spend some of my time making sure that the soldiers were wearing their masks, and they, were, they complied. Uh, I even uh, tried to uh, talk to the firemen who, they had their masks hanging on their chest, and they would work. These guys were digging for their, their brethren, their, their firemen. They, they, were, they wouldn't go home. They would maybe lay down for a half hour, get up, get something to eat or something, and go right back to the rubble. Uh, I remember um, two or three firemen, they said, hey, dude, you, you got that mask, put it on. Well, they, they told me to not <laughs> worry about that. And, and, yeah. and unfortunately, a number of those firemen got sick. And they, they, uh, I know uh, a police officer uh, from the Port Authority police, his name is Bob Nikoja. Uh, Bob and I were firefighters together, volunteer firefighters in a town called Wontaw in New York. Uh, he landed up dying about four or five years later because of cancer related to to 11 so uh that was hard you know he was he's missed and uh he was there digging for his friends and just like some of the firemen they they were just so emotional there was fist fights with you New know, York city police and firemen because they were so this is our area they 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 had their emotions were going nuts and uh some of the things that didn't make the news uh, you know. These guys were helping each other, digging through the rubble. If they found a body, all work would stop and they would everyone would stand, you know, pretty much solemn, and at, not really out at attention, but focus on what's going on. They would mm-hmm. take the, the remains and put it in a Stokes basket, they would drape it with an American flag, and um, they would remove it from, from the, the rubble. And then work would continue. The only thing that didn't stop at the cherry pickers, that would move rubble from, they were basically handing it off and another one would p- take it. Uh, and if they were able to recognize the remains, who are they from, sometimes you could do that from a fireman's helmet. You know, the, the engine company or the ladder company would be, they would ask that company to come and help get their brother out, or sometimes sister out of the, um, the rubble, and they would blast the siren and you know, just do something to uh we would all salute as they would walk past us. The next time I had an opportunity to see that was years later when I was stationed in Iraq, um, about two thousand six, where uh, we would lose a soldier or an airman and as they would come by we would stand in at attention and, and we give them a reverence. So nine eleven, uh the the so weeks after that, I think I was there for about three weeks, rotating three shifts. Uh, I was eventually relieved by uh, members of a uh, New York Guard uh, from upstate. What an, I remember driving home after that my duty was done, and I was crying the whole way home. A 45-minute drive, and the emotions that were basically lifted off my shoulders, I was finally able to absorb it more because I was so busy doing what I was doing, making sure that I was the best I could be. Uh, walking around that neighborhood that I had, you know, grew up as a kid visiting uh, was, it was it was different. There was a big smoldering mess there. The The people were different. The people looked at us in uniform and they patted us on the back and they said, hey, we we got you back. You, you guys, you're, we're proud of you. Or, We felt like rock stars, really, the way we were treated us. They would would cheer for us as we came in. Um, They would, if you were a a steel worker, you, people were patting you in the back. Police officers, they uh, they had a level of respect from people that unfortunately has pretty much diminished uh, to the point where it's gone the other way. It wasn't that way in 2001. I remember seeing cars in the neighborhood. They all had flags, you know, in the windows of the cars would would drive by, and and you, there was a sense of pride that uh, I think has faded. Um, when I when I did get back to my unit, um, I spent a lot of time uh, doing funerals. We, uh, I, as part of the honor guard, we would represent the adjutant general's uh, office, the governor's office by. Having a flag detail, pretty much right in front of the church or wherever they were having the service, and and we try to be, you know, uh, leave the family with a lasting impression of of some you know military. uh, uh, It got hard for us because here's the body being taken out, the casket being taken out, and there's the this man's son holding dad's helmet, you know, the fireman helmet, and and. uh, you know the the bagpipes would play, and they would play as they came over. You know, go leave the uh, the funeral home or the church. It would play "America the Beautiful," and the the FDNY's bagpipe band had this like garnet uh, uh, shirts. You know, they have these red uh, tunics. Uh, very unique uh, too, so. It just gives you chills when you when you see all the reverence and all the, the, the customs that go into a, a line of duty death. And there was hundreds of them. Over about a two-week period, I must have done about 21 funerals just myself, and uh, sometimes two or three a day. We would go from one to the other, and they really try to coordinate it so that people could make as many as they could. Uh, back in... April, just back up a little bit, in April of 2001, I got, I got married, and um, uh, just before that, St. Patrick's Day, um, I remember being uh, chosen to lead the parade, the St. Patrick's Day parade in West Hampton, and I watched this little, I guess she, he was about 13 years old, little kid playing the bagpipes, and he was cranking these pipes sounding great. And I know, oh, I got angry. I got so jealous. <laughs> and I said, I want to learn these pipes. My grandfather's from Scotland. I uh, have a little connection family-wise. And so um, I took up lessons my honeymoon. And I was playing the chanter and making crazy noises. And like, uh, <laughs> God bless my wife putting up you know, with me for the... Yeah. Um, 9-11 happened. I heard those pipes. And that drive to learn the pipes just solidified. And I, I wanted to do it. Uh, a year, a year later, 9/11, 2002 I had the opportunity to play the bagpipes at Ground Zero, at Battery Park, where I had been stationed for three weeks, during a ceremony where they had the um, EMS Memorial Bike Ride that started in Boston and ended in Roanoke, Virginia. They stopped there. I played and um, tears, and, and you know everyone was very yeah. emotional about that. And since then, I've, I have must have played um, a dozen or so, 9-11. Uh, I still play the bagpipes now. Um, I had the opportunity, unfortunately, well, I would say fortunately, to play for my uh, grandfather when he passed. He was 91, and I remember him telling me, Chris, he says... Uh, I like to yeah, play the pipes at my funeral. I said, Grandpa, can you tell me where when this is so I'm going to have off that day from work? And, you know. <laughs> right. he, was, he, he was a kidder, so. Yeah. Uh, but he wanted me to play um, Flowers of the Forest, which is a five minute long song. It's very difficult to play. And and I thought, yeah, I could do that. Well, playing for your family member is different. And I somehow focused my, just like I did when I was at Ground Zero, you do your job, and when. Uh, when I left, when I was done playing for my grandfather, I felt all the emotion just come crushing on my shoulders, and a very similar feeling, because you, you feel powerless that you can't do anymore, and um, we, we all felt powerless that time. We all um, kind of talked about it a few weeks later, uh, just to make sure that we were all you know okay with it, and and that we did, I mean, we. it. At war, we were getting ready to um, to go do a mission overseas, and eventually we did. And consequently, I've been back and forth four times over there since then. And I'm I'm actually going back over in January or so, uh, you know, for probably my last deployment. Um, But we all felt a, a tangible sense, you know, to that mission that we had. We it meant a lot more. It meant like, okay, we're not just training anymore. We're we're going to go do something, it took it a lot serious, a lot more serious. So.
0: You mentioned um, when you showed up at the base that that was the first time you'd seen Delta, your personnel chief was armed and stuff. Mm-hmm. That that shift in, I guess, dynamic, especially from somebody who had, you'd been in prior for obviously a little bit amount of time leading up to there. Uh, I mean, how that change you as an airman? To, to go from the situation of, you like you said, not even alpha to all of a sudden you're, you're full tilt. Yeah. And we'll twi- see the chaos. Yeah. I think it
2: changed me more as a citizen first. I think when I was when I finally did get in touch with the wife on the phone, I said, hey, this, this horrible thing happened. I got to go to the base. She says, why you? I said, this is what I trained for. This this we all, you never know this day is going to come, today's the day it's coming. and." I have an obligation. Uh, I I'm not feeling sorry for myself, you know. Uh, um, I'm part of a unit, and now it's time for me to to be who you know I trained for. So my citizen airman thing kind of switched a little bit, and I felt an obligation. I wasn't gonna let my unit down. I wasn't gonna. This was they attacked my city and and state, our country, of course. But I felt like I was nothing was gonna keep me from doing my duty uh, and, you know, I've known people who died that day. I didn't know during that time that I just lost a number of friends. One of the people I went to high school with, uh, his name is Steven Siller. Stephen Siller was uh, was a fireman who just got off duty uh, in Brooklyn, in a firehouse in Brooklyn and. Um, he came back to his firehouse. He couldn't get through the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel to get to Manhattan. He got his gear and he ran. He perished in, the, uh, in the, when the buildings fell. And that's why we have the Tunnel of Towers run. It's for Stephen Silver. So, of course, I had that connection. And, uh, of course, the, uh, the, the Tunnel of Towers run that comes up every September, I try to get involved with and kind of have, a, you know, a personal connection. Um, but I, about a year or so, just a year to the day when I went to Iraq in two thousand and six, one of my workers, he he died in a roadside bombing in two thousand five. Uh, Jeff Wiener was, was in the uh, the Navy. He was a he was a corpsman with the Marine unit, and he was killed. Uh, and I was in country in the same country a year later, and you know I had the opportunity to. To speak at church and, and you know just talk about them a little bit. So we all knew people that that died that morning and then that subsequently perished, and whether it was a, for a fight of freedom or from being sick. Uh, unfortunately, I know people also who suffered emotionally and, and mentally, and either ended their lo- own lives or uh, went down a path of you know self destruction. Uh, one of the reasons why i persevered was i my connection with my church my connection with my family my you know my wife and um and my unit was very supportive we were hurting we were bleeding from from that this is a unit that lost a, a jumper in the in the movie the perfect storm they lost uh hh60 and, and uh they lost rick smith um his daughter uh Grew up, and she's the last I knew she was a master sergeant in in his unit in the 103rd Rescue uh, Squadron. Uh, terrific uh, NCO. Um, so it's a, it's kind of a family. You definitely felt that. So getting back to your question about uh, how I felt, the the sense of my sense of mission uh, was crystal clear. Yeah, you know, I wasn't gonna let anything distract me from it, and I had my my family support, so I was able to focus on my mission.
0: So. You mentioned uh, also on the, you know, you're out there, obviously a high, intense situation, and and your go and and, oddly enough, I'm prior Air Guard medical myself, so okay. I similar similar roots on this. So I know how it gets when you get in into the heat of things. Um, but you mentioned the, 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 the breakdown uh, kind of on the way home type thing. Yeah. Uh, everything kind of fell on you at one shot. Um, when that happened, I guess – I'm trying to figure out the right way to word this. Was there, was there a sense of relief and a job well done at that point in time?
2: Uh, not immediately. I think at that time um, I was I was playing tapes in my head of all of the things that I'd accomplished when I was there, making sure that I, I did the right thing, making sure I gave my 100%. And I felt I had. I, maybe I could have done more. I thought our teamwork was good. I was disappointed that we didn't have lives to save because as a medic that's what my job was. But I, I would think that I had an impact on those soldiers that I spoke to that first day. Uh, I know it had an impact on me because I was at a point in my career where i wasn't sure if i had purpose i was in i would go you know once a month and i do my training and and it was kind of like um, is the best part of my military career behind me Uh, my first job was air traffic control so that was uh, was an interesting job you know it's a (laughs) mental job yeah we were taught about how to how to recognize stress in yourself and in others, and your coworkers, and identify it and uh, work with it. I learned how to meditate. I, you know, I learned some tricks to to manage stress, and I still use those tricks today. Uh, but when I was driving home, and those emotions were flooding out, I I thought the best thing to do is just let it let it go, think about it, and then take kind of like an inventory of what. What I had done, what I wanted to do, and how I was going to make it a positive thing out of something negative, uh, it took me a while to to do that. Um, and one of the things that's therapeutic is something that I'm doing now is talking about it and expressing my, um, you know, telling my story and, and you know, being honest about my emotions. We all were were pretty you know upset about it, and you know, talked with my wife. I'm still involved with some of the things and. Um, I've been to New York a couple of times, and I have not yet seen the uh, the memorial the way it is now, but I am planning on going there uh, for Thanksgiving. Uh, I have three kids that are in marching band, and we're, you know, we're <laughs> going to be going up to Philadelphia. They're going to be marching in that parade. So one of the things is to visit the uh, 9-11 memorial. And I, I, they haven't asked me yet, but I'll bring my bag <laughs> just <in laughs> Yeah. just um, and- Now, the
0: bagpipes are an interesting thing because that's a – for lack of better terms, that's a positive thing. And it's odd sometimes to think of something this tragic um, creating situation where something super positive comes out, especially at a personal level. You know, obviously we saw what the nation did as a whole, but I think sometimes we overlook in in that process of how – something like this brings about a positive change in somebody and then that that's something that very much occurred in you
2: right there's not too many instruments that elicit an emotional response you might get it from an acoustic guitar or harmonica but bagpipes you, you some people hate it you know it, it's it, it's very loud it, it has a um, but some people when they hear it especially if they have an, an ethnic you know attachment whether it's irish or scottish and there's even indian uh, heritage uh, when you hear it, you uh, you get emotional. You you think about uh, there's there's still today there's uh, British infantry units that won't go into battle without a piper. They went into mm-hmm. battle in the Falkland Islands and, uh, in the eighties and uh, in Desert Storm. They they need to have that because their so their history it's it's intertwined with that. And World War Two, there were British prisoners of war that somehow got pieces together and they made their own bagpipes because just for the emotional support it gave their soldiers and uh, so I'm sure that I've made people at least when they listen to, to playing and they, they think they, they think about their, the situations. they think about the emotions and they think about the, the people who you know are gone and, and, uh, you know I do I, I think about it. I'm, sometimes I have to put it out of my mind when I'm playing. It's a difficult instrument to play. Uh, you know, I I kid around when people ask me. Uh, I said oh, I just learned it. You get a tape at the library and one weekend, you got it. <laughs> yeah, it yeah. Uh, my my thirteen-year-old just asked me last week to start giving him lessons. Um, I wouldn't have given started him unless he's shown me. You know, he plays about seven instruments. He he was uh, first chair in the bassoon uh, for the state last year. Uh, as a eighth grader, and this is his first year as a ninth grader, so things are going to get harder. But he's very musically inclined, so he may carry that uh, kind of you know torch when I when I put them down. So a little history, a little family history.
0: Yeah. Um, the the other part that I find interesting about that is because, it, like you said, you had an interest beforehand, but this this nine eleven obviously solidified it. So. You know, every time you play, it's people might not realize it if they don't know your story, but, I mean, it really is a, a remembrance of of it every time you hit the bagpipes, basically, type thing. Um, and and that's, that's that's unique. I mean, that, that's awesome. Um, and I think it just brings it more back down. Like I said, whenever you have something like this as a national level, you tend to look at it as a national level event. And we we tend to to forget that individual person and and I'm sure you aren't the only one, but there's there's a whole group out there that all the small
1: personal connections that still exist and it's like you're still remembering honoring and serving that that moment to this day
2: I, I'm glad that that I do have that i I left New York uh, about five years ago. you know I retired from the police department as a paramedic and I wanted to. I was done with snow, first of all. Um, uh, but we, I came to I a good to, place. To, for that. Yeah, I wanted, I wanted <laughs> to be where where people are nicer to each other, where people were still growing, the politics are more in line with what I was doing, and I found a unit at, at McIntyre. Um, but when I got here and I started working as a paramedic for Lexington EMS, uh, I I saw a 9/11 memorial in the county of Le- in the city of Lexington, and I thought they they really have a connection? I was so surprised uh, and that was on the first day just looking, like interviewing for the job and a few minutes after that I think I pulled into a Wendy's or a restaurant like that and this uh, gentleman was walking by and he was waving to me like like he knew me, like I owed him money and, stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and he was just saying hey, yeah, I, that would never happen in Long Island and, and uh, uh, finally started working with Lexington EMS and and I remember uh, Chief Brian Hood uh, of EMS. He, uh, we were sharing a meal for for some training, and he, you know, we all bowed our heads and prayed together. Again, that's not something that that happens where I came from. And I, I remember calling my wife on the phone. I said, I really found a place that we can bring up our family, our kids. And I'm so happy. I, I love our church. I love the library, the school district. So I'm I'm happy where I am, and I'm happy doing uh, continuing to do this job. I'm in my I'm just about to finish twenty three years in the guard, so well as long as I congratulations. Can, as long as I can, <laughs> yeah.
0: But um well, Master Sergeant, we appreciate you taking time out today. Um and, and definitely appreciate you sharing this story with us. Um, um It's my honor uh, and privilege. Yeah, thank you. I, I I haven't met you before now to say yeah. thank you, but thank you uh, for what you did and uh um anytime you are welcome back on this podcast and we we hope great things for you in the future thank
2: you thank you very much
0: well i'm glad master sergeant bernard was able to to stop by and talk with us and he had a uh, like i told y'all beforehand you know he had a very unique perspective um, definitely different than the young lady we spoke with yesterday, um, who had, you know, she wasn't even in the military yet and whatever. But he was there. Yeah. He, he was there.
1: It's like we're talking about, like, some people saw it happen and then joined the army. You know, some people saw it flip while they were in it. And he was one of those people who was doing his normal day-to-day job and then everything just changed.
0: Yep. Yes. And he stayed in after it too. Yeah you know, once again, we go back to kind of what we said before about those being defining moments in people's lives. Um, not to say that it makes anybody a lesser person, but there was a lot of people, you know, at the point in time when that event happened said, you know, I can't, I'm done. yep, yeah, I'm out. And um, nothing wrong with that. I'm not, I'm not dogging anybody out. It's just those are the choices. And, and here was an individual said, you know, I'm in, I'm in for longer. And he's, he's done multiple deployments and and things since then, but he
1: saw some of the the hardest stuff from what he was saying, I mean just just the emotion attached with his initial response to that and then to stay in that's
0: yeah, and once again, you know how we were talking just kind of before we got to his interview about how you know police and stuff take care of soldiers uh and airmen here was a situation where you know he was taking care of first responders and soldiers and airmen and, and you know doing all these health and wellness type checks and just making sure, hey guys, you know, take that break, you know, and, and like he said, it was hard for him to get them to. They wouldn't, and, and
1: he had to try to carry their burdens so they could keep doing their job as well. Yeah. I mean that's that's a lot of weight to hold on somebody.
0: Oh yeah, and and like he said, you know, it wasn't until he started heading home that you know he 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 broke that little bit, and then and that goes back to kind of what we we're talking about with first responders and stuff. They 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 have some switch they flip Mm -hmm. and it's go time it's uh, i'm not taking that break i'm not stopping now i'll figure out later when i need to rest and and things like that so once again you know uh, kudos thank you uh y'all are awesome all the words of you know uh, acclaim and 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 uh, chill to (laughs) y'all Thank y'all. Thank you. And, and, you know, that includes the soldier, airmen, all the other military members. Like I said, this is a remember. It's not only of the, the people that were there and where they were in their lives at that point in time, but also all the lives that that event has touched, uh, from here on, uh, around the world, around the world. So, um, uh, make sure you tune in. We got, we got two more, um, uh special episodes for the podcast this week. Uh we are gonna skip nine eleven because that is the the day of remembrance and we're 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 not gonna we're not gonna do, everyone has their own Yeah, their own way of and we're gonna allow, you know, we wanna make that possible. We don't wanna have to throw something out there for y'all. Um but we will we'll be coming back to it um I believe that Thursday and, and Friday of of this week to with two more. Podcast. So uh, make sure we'll have, you know, different people in for those and different perspectives again uh, around the 9 11 event. So um, once again, I'm Specialist David Erskine.
1: I'm Captain Cody Jensen.
0: And we'll catch you in the next episode.